Delighted that you're here, and I hope you brought a Bible with you. And I encourage you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. You might put a marker there because that's where we're going to be spending our time is in 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. I want us to begin by looking at verse 1. There Peter writes saying, Therefore since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I want to pay attention to this phrase, arm yourselves. We often in a cursory reading of 1 Peter chapter 4 jump right into the fact that he talks about sin at verse 3 and that what Peter is saying is that we need to stay away from sin and he does and we'll get to that in a moment. But before he ever gets to that, he says, arm yourselves. Are you armed? Do you continue to go around armed? Do you think you need to be armed? Arm yourselves, the text says. What does arm mean? Well, it means to equip or to arm, Bedag says. Loanidas says it means to prepare, to make ready. Thera says it means to arm or to furnish with arms. So it gives the idea of being armed like an army is armed and prepared. It gives the idea of making preparation, making ready for something. To be equipped. Sometimes we're not equipped. We're not ready. Let's go back to the army illustration. The army goes ready to go into battle, but they don't have all the weapons they need. They don't have all the men they need. And so they're not equipped and they're not ready. So the idea of arming yourself is the idea of, of being armed like an army. Linsky observed this. He said this word that is translated arm yourselves is any useful tool and a military weapon only where the context speaks of a soldier or war, which is not the case here. Don't misunderstand Linsky. Linsky is saying that's not the similar connotation. What he's saying here in this context, there is no mention of a soldier, there's no mention of war, but it's still the same concept of arming yourself like a soldier. Here it is not in the sense of a literal arming yourself. That's not what's involved. Now, how does arm yourselves fit into the context that we're talking about? Well, let's start with verse 1 again. Verse 1 begins with the word, therefore. When you see the word therefore, it always points backwards to something that has already been said. Again, if I were to be in a conversation with you and I walked up and I said, well, therefore, you'd say, well, wait a minute, I missed part of that conversation. Tell, tell me why you said therefore. Why did he say therefore? He points back chapter 3, verse 18 and the verses that follow thereafter. And there he says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. He goes back and talks about the suffering of Christ, how he endured the cross for our benefit. I know that's what he's talking about, and that's what he's pointing back to because he said, therefore, since Christ also suffered for us in the flesh, he mentions it again. So since Christ has suffered for us, therefore, he says, arm yourselves. Now, let's go a little bit further. Listen, again, we're talking about how arming yourselves fits into the context. You arm yourself with the same mind, he says. The same mind? What does the word mind mean? 
Loamitis says the word mind means the way of thinking, the disposition, the manner of thought, the attitude. So you see, Christ suffered for you, and he did so with a disposition, with a mindset, with a attitude that he had that caused him to be one who was willing to give his life for our sins. Now, I'm learning something from that. I am to arm myself with the same mind. In other words, to have the same mind means I have the same attitude he had, his same intent and his same way of thinking. So I need to go back and look at Christ and his suffering for us. What was his attitude in that? What was his disposition? What was his manner of thinking in the middle of all of that? You see, Christ was interested in the spiritual result over any physical problems. Go back to verse 18 of our content. For Christ suffered for us once for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. You see, what he was interested in was that spiritual result more so than any suffering he had to go through to obtain that result. That's the attitude he had. That was the intent that he had. So the text is saying, arm yourselves with that same mindset that you would be more interested in the spiritual result over any physical problems you endure in the process. You see, he was willing to do God's will regardless of the consequence. I want to do what God wants me to do. Now I have to suffer in order to do that, but I'm willing to do that. Whatever God's will might be. Now let's see what the point is. What's his point? Therefore, since Christ suffered for you in the flesh, for us in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mind, he said. The point is, arm yourself with a spiritual mind, which is what Christ had. Arm yourself with spirituality. He is not saying arm yourselves with swords. He is not saying arm yourselves with guns. That's another circumstance. But in this context, arm yourself like a soldier would arm himself to go to battle, but you're arming yourself not with spears and guns and swords, but you're arming yourself with spirituality. The mindset that Jesus had, which was a spiritual mind. It's the same idea of Romans 6 and verse 13. Yield your bodies as instruments of righteousness. That word instrument is from the same word, same concept. Footnote will say weapons. In other words, it's a tool or a weapon. So use your body as a tool for righteousness. So arm yourself with spirituality is the idea. So let's talk this morning about arming yourselves. Just like you think of a soldier arming himself. If he's going to go to battle, he needs, a, he needs an arm. He needs, he needs his spear, he needs his, his uh, sword, or he needs in the modern time his rifle. He needs his gun. He needs to be ready to go and do the job he has to do. Arm yourselves. But when you arm yourselves, you're arming yourself with spirituality. You open up your case and you pull out spirituality, and now you're armed with the attitude of Christ. Now what happens to those, or what is it that one does when they are armed with spirituality? When we're armed with spirituality, first of all, we're done with sin, verses 1 to 3. When you arm yourself, as per verse 1, you will be done with sin. Now let's see what he says about being done with sin. At verse 1 he says, For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's not talking about Christ. 
talking about us because Christ couldn't cease because there was no sin from which to cease. So he's talking about mankind. He's talking about God's people. And so he stopped sin. And so here's the first thing I'm learning is that ceasing the sin proceeds the suffering. That's the idea or the persecution. It's not that, that when one goes through persecution, that's going to cause him to see sin. When he suffers, that causes him to see sin. I don't think that's the point. I think the point simply is that the one who ceased from sin, notice again the wording at verse 4, the one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. If they're suffering in the flesh, they're suffering because they did cease from sin. This is persecution suffering for the cause of the Lord. Same idea in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No, 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 he says. God forbid. Now with this new spiritual mindset, with this spiritual arming that we have, we're done with sin. We're not to continue in that. Same point made in 1 John 3 and in verse 6. The one that is born of God does not sin. Doesn't mean he never sins. It means he's done with sin in the sense he no longer continues to practice it. He's done with that. But let's go further in the same context. Still developing the idea of being with sin. The one with the spiritual mindset views sin as a waste of time. Notice now starting with verse 3 and we'll come back to verse 2. He has spent enough time in sin for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. At the point at which he becomes a Christian, at the point at which he obeys the gospel and seeks the forgiveness of his wrong in his life, He's viewing sin as a waste of time. I've wasted too much time in sin. I've wasted enough time doing the will of the Gentiles. Now verse 2. Verse 2, the rest of his time should be spent serving God. Go back to verse 2, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. You see, he views sin as a waste of time because of his new spiritual mindset. He's armed in Christ. And now that he's armed with this spirituality about him, the mindset that Christ has, he views sin as a waste of time. But we're not through. Let's go back again to verse 3. He fights sin in every form. He fights sin in all of its forms. Now what do we mean by that? Well, he has a militant attitude towards sin now because he's armed. That's a military concept. He's armed. And he's going to fight. And so he's going to use his weapons against sin. He has a militant attitude towards sin. But I want you to notice six things that are mentioned here at verse 3. When we walked in licentiousness and lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Now, obviously, that's not an exhaustive list. But here's some things I learned from that list. That is, he's going to fight sin in all of its forms, whether it's an overt act like licentiousness or lasciviousness, or thoughts that grow into greater sin like lust. See, he mentions both in this context. So one who is armed, who's arming himself, he's fighting sin in all forms, not just the overt act, but the lust that would grow into greater sin. But furthermore, he fights sin whether it's something excessive like drunkenness or it's something in moderation like the drinking parties, the drinking bouts. So he doesn't just fight the excess of sin, he fights the moderation of sin. He fights sin, whether it's something obvious like idolatry, someone bowing down before an idol, that's quite obvious, or it's something more subtle like revelry. All six sins have just been listed. He fights sin in all of its form. So one who is armed, 
who's armed themselves, they're done with sin. But here's the second thing. Notice now at verse 4, they're going to be viewed as strange. If you're armed and you go around armed, armed spiritually, armed with spirituality, you're going to be viewed as strange. Look at verse 4. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them to the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. See, the world thinks you're strange. The same word is found at verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trials, which is to try you. Same word. What does that mean? Bedak means to be astonished or surprised. That's interesting. They think it's strange. They're surprised. They're astonished. There it says it means surprised or astonished by the strangeness and novelty of a thing. Do you ever see somebody who's doing something so different from the way you do things? The way you've always known, you're kind of surprised at the novelty of it. This is quite different. <coughs> you've never seen anything quite like this. In other words, they look at you as being odd and different from all the rest. You don't fit in, in other words. You're armed with spirituality. You've got a different mindset than the rest of the world. Now, here's the reason they look at you as odd. And something of a novelty is because you're not like them. Go back to verse 4. Go back to verse 4. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. What does that mean? The English Standard says the same flood of debauchery. The New International translate that the reckless and wild living. You see, they think you're odd because you don't do the same things they do. They run with wild living. They live like they want. They follow their own lust and their own desires, and you don't do that, and they think you're odd. So they view you as odd and strange and surprising, and you're a novelty. Why? Because you don't drink. You're a novelty because you don't drink. They think you're odd. That you, it's just strange to me that you won't take a drink. And it's kind of odd to me, they may say to you, that we have a Christmas party and you won't come because there's drinking going on. This is, this is strange. Who's like that? Who, who even has that kind of objection? They think you're odd because you don't laugh at filth that they laugh at. And they may think you're odd because you don't watch the same movies. They tell you at work about the movie they've been watching and you ought to go and they invite you to go with them and you say, no, I'm just I'm not interested. And you're a novelty. It's kind of odd that you wouldn't do that. And they think it's odd that you don't dance. You won't come to this, this gathering because there's going to be a dance afterwards and it's just kind of odd to me that you're, you're just kind of a strange bird that you won't do that. And, and you won't violate the law. You see, what we ask you to do, I realize that what we're asking you to do here at work may be a violation of the law, but, but you say you won't do that to save your job? What a novelty that is. And it's absolutely amazing that you're not willing to tell a little lie, but you might make a little more money. You see, you're viewed as something strange because of your spiritual mindset. Now, here's what they do because of that. Go back to verse 4. Are you back at verse 4 with me? In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them to the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They think you're strange 
We know why they think you're strange. Here's what they do. They speak evil of you. You see, they're not content to live different than you and you live different from them. They're not content with that. They either think that you need to live like them or you need to suffer their ridicule. That happens in our current world all the time, not just with Christians. Happening in the political world, you either conform to my way of thinking or you're the subject of my ridicule for not thinking like I think. And so they think you're strange. So if you arm yourselves with spirituality, that's how you go armed. And you open up your case, instead of pulling out a rifle, you pull out spirituality and you're armed with that. You're going to be done with sin and you're going to be viewed as strange. You're going to see prospects. Verses 5 and 6. You're going to see prospects. You see at verse 5, you're going to see all the world is giving an account. Look at verse 5. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Those who are armed with spirituality views all the world as those who give an account. They don't just view them as merely different than they are. Or bad people or even terrible sinners. That they may be. They may be terrible sinners. They may be bad people. They may be sinners. They may be different. But he views them as those who will stand in and lose their soul. That's the vantage point. That's the view with which you see them. Instead of putting on glasses and viewing them through the lens of, these are just bad people I don't want to have anything to do with. The spiritual mindset puts on a different pair of glasses where you view them and you say, you know what? These are people who are going to face judgment. These are people, no matter how terrible they are, how ungodly they live, they're subject to judgment and will give an account for their souls. Now verse 6. Thus they, we take the gospel to them that they might live. Notice at verse 6. For this reason. For what reason? The reason given in verse 5 of standing before judgment. For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead that they might be judged according to men in the flesh but live according to God in the spirit. Now, let's stop and footnote how and in what sense was the gospel preached to those that are dead. Not the idea of going and preaching to those who are dead, who've, who've died physically. I think he is talking about physical death here, that they might live. Some may think he's talking about spiritual death. But it's not saying they were dead at the time that the gospel was preached to them. That those who are now dead, the gospel had been preached to them while they were alive. And evidence of that would be over in 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 19. He went and preached to the spirits in prison. Not that they're in prison or in Hades now at the time, or, or at the time they are now, but not at the time the gospel was preached to them. That's the point. So but let's go back now to verse 6. The point is, because they stand before judgment, we take the gospel to them. They're viewed as prospects. Because we recognize, you see, the gospel has the power to convert them. The gospel is the power of God into salvation. So yes, this is a terrible sinner over here. And yes, this one is living in sin. And yes, this one is a homosexual. And yes, this one is living in adultery. And yes, that one is an idolater. But the gospel has the power to change them. In fact, the gospel has the power to change the worst of sinners. Paul said that he was the chiefest of sinners. He was voicing his opinions that Christian ought to be killed and it converted him. 
So you arm yourselves. You're done with sin. You're viewed as strange. You're going to see prospects. But verse 7, and we'll come back and pick up verse 2 and verse 6, the one who arms himself is serious about God. The one who arms himself is serious about God. Look at verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Now, first of all, the seriousness is in view of the end. Now, there's one of three possibilities here, two of which we'll put on the screen. The end may refer to destruction of Jerusalem. Many think so. And so in, in view of this tragic event coming before them, then we need to be serious about God. Well, that was true. That's what Matthew 24 urged. And so that's not a false concept or false doctrine. It may not be what this passage is talking about. There's no mis, mis In fact, none of the three positions I'm going to suggest to you are erroneous concepts. They just may not fit this, this passage. So, so yes, in view of the, the destruction of Jerusalem, before it was coming, it was going to be a time of tribulation, a time of difficulty for the people of God, and so they need to be serious about their service to God. That's one possibility. The second one, which I think probably is the case, that he's simply saying that the end of time is nearer now than it's ever been. When it's at hand, he doesn't mean in this context, I think, that it's about to happen, if this be true, but that it's closer now than it's ever been. Romans chapter 13, now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. We're closer now to salvation or eternity and heaven or hell than we've ever been. Romans 13 and verse 11. Another possibility, not on the screen before you, is that he means end or telos or aim. That is the culmination of all things. That is the, the, the goal is going to be completed. And that ultimately would point then to the end of time. But whatever the case may be, the point's going to be the same. And that is we need to be serious in view of the end, whether it's the end in the sense of a major event taking place or the end of time or the culmination of all things. In view of the end, what do we need to be? Notice at verse 7, we need to be serious. Go back to our text at verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, because of that, be serious. What does it mean to be serious? It means to be prudent. With focus on self-control, reasonable, sensible, serious, keep one's head. In other words, that's in contrast to one that is not focused on the spiritual. Now get the picture. Are you serious? Therefore, in view of the end, whatever that may be, because of that taking place, therefore be serious, the text says. What does that mean to be serious? Well, in contrast to one who's not spiritually minded, he's not focused on the spiritual, what we need to do is be prudent, have self-control, be reasonable, be sensible, keep one's head, keep your focus in the right direction. Now let's go further, same verse. That will be manifested in watching in prayer. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. You see, prayer is an indicator of spiritual depth. How deep is your spirituality? How, how good is your arms that you are armed with? In other words, a soldier goes out and he, he carries a rifle that hasn't been serviced or hasn't been cleaned and uh, shoddily made. 
He's not well-armed because it may not do the job. If your spirituality doesn't have some depth to it, it may not do the job. We need to be armed with deep spirituality is the idea. And prayer is an indicator of spiritual depth. So we watch by praying. One of the ways in which I watch is through prayer. I'm praying about things that are a concern for me. New American Standard 95 translates that we are to be of a sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Not just watchful in prayer, but be of a sober spirit, of a sober mindset, of a serious mindset for the purpose of prayer. You can't truly pray like we ought to pray if our mindset is not serious. But let's go further. Let's go to verses 2 and 6. Now we said verse 7, verse 2, and verse 6. If we're serious about God, verse 7, we're going to live for the will of God. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. You see, when we're serious about God, we're going to live for God's will. Now verse 2 makes this point in contrast to our own desires. That he should no longer live the rest of his time of his, in, in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. See, if you're serious about God, that's a contrast to doing whatever you want to do. Your own desires, you're, you're serious about doing the will of God. Now verse 6. Verse 6. We're going to care very little what men think or what men want or what men may like. Notice at verse 6. For this reason the gospel was preached to those also who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. It doesn't really matter much what men think. When I have a spiritual mindset, when I'm armed spiritually or with spirituality, I will care very little if men like what we do. But let's go further. The one who is armed spiritually, we arm ourselves. We're going to be done with sin, be viewed as strange, be prospects. We're going to be serious about God. But verses 89, we're going to hold brethren as dear. When we don't hold brethren as dear, it's because we don't have that spiritual mindset. But when we are armed with spirituality, we're going to have fervent love, as per verse 8. But above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. But that short verse said a lot. Notice he said, above all else, but above all things. He is not saying that love for your brethren is far more important than your love for God. That's not what he's saying, above all things. That love for your brethren is more important than your worship and your service to God. That's not what he's saying. But in the context of our relationships, and particularly our relationship among brethren, what is first and foremost in our relationships is our love for one another. And then he describes that as being fervent love. That idea for fervent means to stretch out like the string of an instrument. I don't play stringed instruments or any kind of instrument for that matter. But those of you who play a guitar or something of that nature where you tighten that string and you stretch that string on the instrument, the same concept of stretching that string is the idea of this fervent, uh, fervent love that you stretch it out. In other words, it's active and it's exerted. It's not just something you hold in your mind. It's not something you merely say, but you exert that. It's stretched out is the idea. But then he said, that kind of love will hide a multitude of sins. Go back to verse 8. 
But above all things, he said, above all things, above everything in your relationships, make sure you love one another fervently and hide a multitude of sins. In other words, love is forgiving. It doesn't mean love overlooks sin. It doesn't mean love ignores sin. God said, as many as I love, I rebuke, Revelation 3. But it means he looks beyond the sin to doing them some good. So maybe you've been done wrong by someone. Fervent love, you look beyond the sin. Now you're going to deal with the sin. Yes, that sin needs to be dealt with. It may need to be addressed. They may need to be rebuked. But you look beyond that of how you can do them some good. Maybe helping them overcome that sin. Let's look at Proverbs 10 and in verse 12. may serve as a commentary for that concept Proverbs 10 and notice in verse 12 hatred stirs up strife but love covers all sins now how does love cover all sin well love helps us deal with the sin love helps us forgive that sin we see that in 2nd Corinthians chapter 2 but there's something else about holding brethren dear verse 9 hospitality without grudging Notice what else he says at verse 9. He says, be hospitable to one another without grudging. Hospitality means to be generous to guests. Here in this context, not necessarily in all others, he's talking about hospitality shown among Christians. You say, how do you know? Look at verse 9. Be hospitable to one another, that one another relationship that we so often see scattered throughout the New Testament. Literally, the word hospitality means love of strangers. And perhaps he's talking about the custom of traveling, Christians traveling from one portion of the world to another, and as they would travel and need a place to stay, then show hospitality to your fellow Christian that you know to be a godly person, but you don't know who they are, really. You don't know much about them. And he said, do so without complaining about the inconvenience that may be for you. Hold brethren as dear. Now, one who himself also prepared for hardships, verses 12 to 16. One who is armed is well prepared for hardships. A soldier who goes armed is prepared for whatever may come his way. He may not have to always use his weapon, but he's prepared for whatever hardships comes his way. You see, he prepares because this is common. Hardships are common. Look at verse 12. 1 Peter 4 and verse 12. Do not think it's strange. That's the same word that we saw earlier as novelty. Concerning the fiery trial which is about to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. In other words, it's common. You know, all who live godly are going to suffer persecution, as Paul would tell Timothy. So prepare yourself for difficult days and challenges to your faith because everybody faces challenges to their faith. It's the one who gets into the fray and, and then suddenly begins to, to bristle up, say, I, I want expecting some kind of challenge to my faith at all. I wasn't expecting this. This is what is expected of soldiers. Arm yourselves and be ready because it's very common. But that's not all he says. Look at verse 13. If you endure, you'll receive your crown, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering. Now, why do I, why do I rejoice? I, I'm going to, to go through hardships, and you say I'm to rejoice over that? Not in that I'm suffering. There's two things I rejoice about. One is that it makes me in fellowship with Christ because it makes me like him. I'm suffering like he did. I'm a partaker of his suffering. 
that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. You're going to receive your reward if you endure. And so prepare for hardships because it's common. Prepare for hardships because if you endure and you are prepared to endure, then you'll receive your reward. But then notice 14, 15, and 16. The ultimate goal is that God's going to be glorified in all of that. Notice verse 14. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. In other words, people are, are ridiculing your service as a Christian. They make fun of you because of your, your being a novelty. They ridicule you for your stand for Christ. And in their mind, they're ridiculing God. But from God's vantage point, God's glorified because you stood firm. Look at verse 15. But let none of you suffer as an evildoer. Or as an evil, uh, or as a evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. But if you suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. God's glorified in that. One more point, and the lesson is yours. Let's look at verses 17 to 19. Verses 17 to 19. Not only is he done with sin and viewed as strange, sees prospects serious about God, holds brethren as dear, prepared for hardships, but he's ready for judgment. The person who is armed is ready for judgment. If we haven't armed ourselves, we're not ready for judgment. Now I want you to notice verse 17 said, the time will come or has come, the judgment must begin at the house of God. God will judge his own people. Perhaps he's talking about the destruction upon Jerusalem. God's own people and God's own nation, God's going to judge. It didn't matter. We saw that all through the Old Testament. In other words, God didn't just judge Babylon and then judge Egypt and he judged Tyre and, and uh, he judged other nations, but God also judged Israel and he judged Judah. By judging, I mean he punished them for their sin. He punished them for their rebellion, just like he punished Egypt and Babylon and Syria and all the rest. Well, so here with the Jewish nation, what God's doing is God's bringing destruction upon the Jewish nation, his own people, because of their rebellion against him. So God will judge his own people. But now notice verse 18. Well, the rest of verse 17. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who don't obey the gospel of God? Now verse 18. Now if the righteous... One is scarcely saved. Where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? So in other words, if the righteous are going to face judgment, if God's people face judgment, then where do the ungodly and the sinner stand? In other words, if God's going to be, be, be uh, quite harsh, and, and um, that's not the word I should use, maybe God's going to be critical and judge very uh, firmly those who are his own people, what do you think is going to happen to the one who is ungodly and disobedient and rebellious? That's the point of verses 18 and then in verse 19. So what I'm learning from verses 17 to 19 is those who are armed are well aware of the judgment and they strive to be ready. Remember back at verse 5, let's connect that back to verse 5. They recognize that God is ready to judge the living and the dead. There's an account that we have to give in the day of judgment. And those who are armed are well aware. They well understand. That there is a judgment day coming and they strive to be ready. Are you armed? Would you consider yourself as being armed? 
Would you want to be a soldier and be out in a battle and suddenly the enemy comes and you look around in your case where you keep your gun and you look and the gun's not there and you're unprepared. You're not armed. You're not ready. When you look in your case where you carry your spirituality, do you find spirituality? Are you armed with spirituality that you can lift it up and you're armed with spirituality? Those who are armed, this text says, are done with sin. They're going to be viewed as strange. They'll see prospects. They're going to be serious about God. They hold their brethren dear. They're prepared for hardships and they're ready for the judgment that is going to come. Do you have that same mindset that we see found here in this context? There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come? All together we stand and sing.